0: uh go ahead and turn to John chapter 20. Um if you have if you're using one of the the fat Bibles in the chairs there, that's on page 1005. John 20 in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So we are we are at the end of uh our ser- sermon series uh, of talks on our vision and values, and the final value that we will investigate today using uh, the text that I just pointed you to uh, is is on mission. So we have word, community, and mission. So let me just read that text for us. John chapter twenty, and we will look at verses nineteen through twenty three. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is God's word. It's entirely true and given to us in love. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word that is rich and true and speaks to us uh, in ways that we probably have not been spoken to this week. Because they're your words. And so, God, I pray that you would give us uh, attentive ears, uh, ears to hear what you have to say to us uh, this morning concerning your mission for your church, for the world. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I realize that that word, that little word, mission, can be uh, somewhat intimidating to some of us. Because that word, that word, mission, communicates action is communicating to us that that there is something to be done. There's there's an undertaking that we need to take on, and it has a goal in mind. It has an end goal in mind. It communicates even a reorientation of 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 your life. It communicates sacrifice. Now, a lot of you who are in the military in whatever capacity, you know that when you are called or, you're, or you're, your friends are called to be on a mission, that sometimes that mission involves people losing their lives, giving up everything. Well, mission in the Bible is no different. The word mission uh, comes from the Latin word "missio." Which means to, which means to be sent, or it means sending. So this is where we get. If you're familiar with the with the phrase uh, "missio dei," which is the mission of God, that's where we get that from. And so within the church, we've had this probably for the past fifteen or twenty years. We've we've had what's been known as this missional movement. So lots of books have been written about mission, and people have uh, have have had. Have spoken at conferences about mission, and they want the church to be on mission and to live a certain way, but I just want you to know that that is not something that was invented 15 or 20 years ago, but that that has always been the case for the Christian church. The Christian church has always been a missionary or sending sent church. It's always been the case. All you have to do is just look at some of the themes of the Bible. Uh, From the very beginning in Genesis, God sends Abraham to the promised land. Then you have God sending Moses to Egypt to rescue his people. Then you have Jonah being sent by God to the Ninevites. And then you have Jesus being sent to the world. And then the Holy Spirit is sent to the church. And then, then God sends the church... To the nations. So our text today reminds us, reminds the church, three important aspects of the mission that we've been sent on. And these, these are not in your worship guide, you just have a blank page there, but these are the three points. One is that Jesus is present with us in mission. Two is that Jesus sends us on this mission. And three, Jesus equips us for the mission. So look at verses 19 through 20 for this first point, that Jesus is present in the mission. John records for us, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So at this point in John's Gospel, just to give you a little bit of background, a little bit of context, Jesus has risen. So he's already died on the cross, Uh, he's already uh, gone to the grave for three days, and he has risen from the dead, and this is where we find ourselves. And even though, if you look back at verse 18, Mary Magdalene has already returned from the tomb, and she has already reported to the disciples that Jesus is not in the tomb any longer. We still find Jesus' disciples, in verse 19, huddled behind a locked door, paralyzed in fear. Essentially, they are doing the opposite of mission. They are just stuck behind this door. They've just witnessed their friend, with whom they've labored for three long years, they just witnessed him brutally killed. So I think we could probably sympathize a bit and understand why they would be fearful and hiding. Because they know if the Jews were willing to do this to their leader, then they definitely would do that to them as well. And so they're scared. But if you notice, Jesus doesn't take very long to appear before his disciples. He doesn't leave them in suspense, thinking, well, when is Jesus coming back? Is he ever going to come back? And it's weeks and months and years before he appears to them. It's it's a matter of moments before he comes back. And he appears to them. So John tells us he, he enters where they hide and he stands before them. He comforts them with his presence. So in verses 19 and 20, a couple of actions take place by Jesus. So I want to point out some observations about these particular actions. So first, if you look in verse 19, John tells us Jesus stands before them, which doesn't seem like a lot, but Jesus here is making his presence known amongst his disciples. So you can imagine their relief. I mean, they're they're huddled behind a door, afraid of who might come knocking or who might come kicking down this door. You can imagine their relief when all of a sudden, their friend, Jesus, is standing in their midst. So the last time they physically saw Jesus, he was wrapped up and being placed in a tomb that was sealed with a giant rock. So, to them, that was the final action. That was the full stop. That was the period to the person and work of Christ in the minds of the disciples. So, we, we see this sentiment expressed in Luke chapter 24. If you just want to flip there with me, flip left to Luke 24, where Jesus encounters two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And this is after he's risen and all of that, and he encounters two of his disciples. And I just want to read verses 13 through 27 of Luke 24, just to give you an idea, a sense, of what the disciples were feeling at this particular moment. It says, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, "O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken! Was it not necessary that the Christ should should suffer these things and enter into his glory?" And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So we see here just kind of the general attitude of the disciples. It it wasn't a cynical attitude. It was more of, of of we're trying to reinterpret life without Jesus amongst us. They were thinking, It's all back to square one. Now, it's all back to the drawing board. We had hoped, they say, we had hoped that he was the Redeemer of God's people. And then, in John 20, he stands among them. And so, one of the first actions he makes toward them is to show them his hands and his side in verse 21. Now, remember, Jesus was just crucified. And if you don't know what crucifixion is, it was just the Roman style of execution. That is how they got rid of those bad people in their day. This is how they would execute them. So this is when uh, someone was hung on a cross by driving large nails between the bones of their hands so that they could hang there for as long as possible and die this excruciating death. He said, so this is why Jesus holds his hands out to his disciples, to show them his scars, his wounds. Then, after he had hung there a while to make sure that he was dead, they ran a spear through his side, just to make sure that he was dead. And this is why he shows them his side. So Jesus is showing them his wounds that occurred through his suffering and death, and this was significant because it communicates to his disciples uh, three things. One, it communicates that that the person standing before them really is Jesus that this is not an imposter. This is not someone who has just come in just to kind of comfort the disciples and has dressed up in a way that's similar to Jesus and said, look, I'm here with you and now we can, we can go about our, our, our lives. This is really Jesus with real wounds. Second, Jesus communicates that he, this, he was in a real body. He wasn't a ghost. If you recall the, 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 the time that Jesus comes to the disciples, when he walks on the water, their immediate reaction to seeing Jesus is not, hey, there's Jesus. Their immediate reaction is, it's a ghost. And they're terrified. So Jesus appearing before them in a real body is reminding them, I am not a ghost. I am real. And I'm here among you. And then third, he is showing them that this was a bodily resurrection. That Jesus is physical human body came back from the dead fully. So some during this time believe that only Jesus, Jesus came back only in a spiritual sense. And so this, this particular instance would be Jesus' spirit, not a real body. But this is what Jesus is saying to them that I'm showing you these real wounds because I am a real physical person amongst you and have really risen from the dead. And once Jesus does this, John tells us the disciples are glad. Now I know that's kind of like an underwhelming reaction to say, Oh, I'm really glad that happened. But in that in this this word is actually communicating great joy amongst the disciples. They were joyful that, that Jesus was in their presence. So I think verses 19 through 20 could be saying to us in an applicatory way is that if we are going to be a people sent on mission, and we'll get to what that means here in a moment, but if we're going to be a people that are sent on mission to really uh, apply this value to our church, we too must know the reality of Christ's presence with us. We have to know that. That although we don't see him, he is really here amongst us. So how do we know that? How do we know that's true? Well, we can simply just go back to our first two values. The word of God and biblical community. So you have the word of God reminding us and telling us over and over again that Jesus is with you. That Jesus is has never left us, that he will never leave you, nor will he forsake you. Over and over again, God is communicating that to us through his word. And then through community, through being being in biblical community, you have these people who are surrounding you, who remind you, hopefully, day in and day out, that Jesus is with you, that he's with you. In this world, whatever whatever suffering you may be encountering, whatever joys you may be celebrating, Jesus is with you. And so hopefully this is the truth that's being told to us over and over again, that of the reality of Jesus' presence with us. And because of that truth, because of that reality, we too can rejoice right alongside the disciples. And be confident that in what he is calling us to as a church. Because it's the resurrected Christ that calls us on mission. Not some random person in history, but the resurrected Christ. The only one to be risen from the dead fully and who is fully alive to this very day. He is the one who sends you and me on this mission. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So once the reality of res- Jesus' resurrected presence is established, are the disciples now ready for the mission? Remember, they are not ready for the mission before they've seen the resurrected Christ. They are huddled in a, in a locked home, terrified. But notice how Jesus approaches the disciples. He doesn't give them any choice in the matter. He doesn't say to, them, say to them, "You know, if you want to, I could really use a few of you guys to help me out with this thing that I got going on with God." Jesus doesn't do that. It's an expectation that Jesus has of his followers to be sent on mission. It's an expectation. So this is why Jesus uses language uh, throughout his Gospels, like in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, when Jesus says to the crowds that are following him, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, and remember what happens on the cross, and take up his cross and follow me. And then you have in Luke 14, when he encourages all of those, all of the crowd that's following him, uh, those and those who want to follow him, he he looks at them and says, "You need to count the cost of following me. Count the costs because this is what is expected. When I call you, I call you to come and die, and you really need to weigh that out. And this is his plan." And Jesus is fully aware that the mission that he began when he came to this earth would continue onward. And our presence in this building today is, uh, is, proves that it has, that his mission has continued to move forward and that it will continue to move forward. Now, verse 21 may sound a little bit familiar to you when I read it again, but We typically hear it in its longer version from Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age which is known as the Great Commission. So most of us are are familiar with that. And I just want to say, in my opinion, I don't think that is the best title for that phrase. And I just want to, typically, because one is when we hear the word great, I think we automatically, at least some of us, automatically just kind of write that off as someone else's job. That is the Great Commission, and I am not equipped for that. I, God has not called me to go overseas. God has not called me to, to stand before people and preach, preach the Bible. I'm just an average human. I'm not great. So I would propose, and just before you start thinking that I'm a heretic for saying I would change the title, I just want to say the, 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 the chapter numbers and the verse numbers and the subtitles that you have in the Bible right there before you are not inspired. Okay, Those came much later uh, in, in your Bible, and they were just put there simply to just to make things easier for us. Really, they were just put there to make things easier for us, and I'm really thankful for that. I'm glad there's, there's chapter numbers and verse number, numbers and, and subtitles that help us with those things. So, if I were given uh, the duty of retitling uh, Jesus' commission here that he gives to the church simply based on how the disciples have lived their life up to this moment in John chapter 20, and then how we see, see them living their life in their early church. So think about Acts chapter 2, what we read last week. I would title it, The Ordinary Mission. The Ordinary Mission. Because isn't that where we spend most of our days? in the ordinary, in kind of the mundane. How many of you this week have thought about that? I just kind of wake up, get ready for work, or I get ready for school. I engage in whatever it is that I'm supposed to be engaging in for the next 8 to 12 hours. And then I come home and uh, I speak to my spouse or play with my kids and maybe throw some extracurriculars in here and there, maybe a vacation or two uh, throughout the year. But it's all pretty normal. Everybody's doing it. But for the Christian, we have a different framework for our ordinary days, don't we? Because we've been sent. We've been sent. We don't live unto ourselves, but unto God. So we have to ask ourselves the question, are you a sent one? Or are you a sitting one? Are you a sent one or are you a sitting one? So let me just help you with that answer. If you are a follower of Christ, so if you are planning to come to the communion table, which is a way in which we kind of profess our belief in Jesus, that he, that he died for our sins and that this is our family, if you, if you profess to be a follower of Christ, you are a sent one. There's no, exp- there's, no, uh, there's no choice in the matter. That is what you are. You are a sent one. Again, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, he's speaking to his disciples here, even so, I am sending you in the exact same way. So our sentness models Jesus' sentness. So Jesus, it's called when Jesus came to earth, that's called the incarnation. So he comes among us as God in the flesh. And we too are in a way the incarnation of Jesus on this earth as the church, as his body. As Lance read for us from 1 Corinthians 12, that we are the body of Christ. And so this is a theme, this sent this theme is, is, is something we pick up on throughout the gospel uh, of, of John. You don't have to flip there with me because I'm just going to roll through them really quick. But in John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus says, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then in chapter 7, verse 29, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. John 8, 42, I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. And then in chapter 10, verse 36, Jesus testifies to the fact that he was consecrated by the Father and then sent into the world. And then chapter 13, verse 20, Jesus declares, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, receives me. Speaking about his disciples. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. To so the Father, obviously and clearly, sent the Son, and now the Son sends you and me. And thankfully, he equips us in this sending. Look, at, look with me there at verses 22 through 23. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So essentially, what we're learning here in those two verses, in a very simple way, is that we don't go at this mission alone or empty. So Jesus gives us the helper, as he promises over and over again, and he gives us the message that we are to proclaim. Proclaim. So he promises the helper, which is another theme that we pick up on in John's gospel. In John 14, 6, Jesus says to his disciples, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And then he tells him again in chapter 14, verse 26, But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So when you're sent out on mission, you have the Holy Spirit that was given by the Father, and you have nothing to worry about when you go out into this world. Because he is going to help you remember all that Jesus has taught you, so that you can give that away to a watching world. And then he tells him again in chapter 15, verse 26, But when the Helper comes who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So we are sent, but we are not sent alone. God's presence is always with us through the Spirit. And the primary purpose that the Spirit is given to the church is mission. It's a primary purpose because we can't do it on our own. It's impossible. Well, secondly, we are given the message. So we don't have to try to figure this out. We don't have to go, what, what am I supposed to say here? What, what, what do I need to discover here more about, uh, about Jesus to give this away? Jesus gives us the message to tell others. So the mission that we are sent on is the same message mission that Jesus was sent on, which is to do the Father's will, So, which is simply to tell others about the shalom of God or the peace of God that is found in Jesus alone. So I don't know if you remember just probably a month back we talked about sin, and I defined sin as a vandalism of shalom, that sin is a vandalism of peace that we find with God. And so the message that we've been given to tell others is to tell others about the shalom of God that is found in Jesus because because of sin because we have vandalized God's peace it is impossible impossible for humanity to get back to God on their own. There's no way apart from Christ. So God, God himself, makes a way by sending his only son into the world to restore peace between God and humanity through his life, death, and resurrection. That's what God has done. And so in verse 23, Jesus is saying the message that we put before people is the forgiveness that can only be found in Christ. And that is the peace of God, is to be forgiven of whatever sin it may be. Whatever law you have broken, God says in his word that you are forgiven in Christ, period. Nothing else that you have to do. So if you've been forgiven, Jesus is saying, go and offer this forgiveness to others. Because this is a declaration of peace with God. And it's the message of our mission. So let me just say in closing, just as by way of application. So as you wake up tomorrow morning, I want you to remember, you don't go into your office, or your classroom, or your home, or your gym, or the grocery store, or wherever the Spirit kind of carries you that particular day, amongst your friends, or your neighbors, or wherever, you don't go into that as a mere worker bee, trying just to make it through the day as a cog in the machine. I'm just trying to survive. I'm just trying to get through the day, trying to raise my kids so that they don't die. I don't want you to enter into your day like that. You go as one sent on mission by Jesus. You go into that office space tomorrow, or that school, or wherever God places you, you go as one sent on mission by Jesus. That flips everybody's vocation on its head. Whatever you might do, it doesn't matter how mundane you think your job is, God has called you there. And God has sent you on mission there. That you are one who has been forgiven so that you can offer that forgiveness to others. And you go in the power of the Holy Spirit and with the true message of the gospel. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that we would be a church that is on mission that we would see uh, this as an ordinary mission, that this would be normalcy to us, that um, being a sent one of Jesus would be something that we embrace and acknowledge in our conscience of every single day so that we might uh, tell the message of your forgiveness, your peace that we have in Jesus. And so whether we work on post, or we work at a hospital, or we work in a school, or we are a student, or we are in business, or wherever that may carry us, God, that we would be sent on the mission that you have given to us in Christ. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.